And I believe in everything. Seems to be all good. We're good to go. So both our mics now seem to be recording. And all our clips have now finished uploading. There are many things that I would like to say to you. And I'm ready now. So Jamie. Tony. Please tell me, how have you been lately? Lately. And I can tell we're going off the rails. That was Wonderwall. That was Wonderwall? Yep. Walls aren't very accessible. What? <laughs> we don't, we can't climb walls. Able-bodied people can climb walls sometimes. Do you think Humpty Dumpty has a disability? Yeah. Because he like broke very easily? Yeah. Mm. He has shattered shell disorder. Should we cover Humpty Dumpty for a future episode? <laughs> um, sure. Great. I feel like Seth Green and or Seth Rogen and Adam Goldberg are going to make a dirty, another dirty animated movie called Humpty Dumpty, and it's going to be about Humpty Dumpty's first date. It, it'll be called Humpty Humpty. <laughs> I'm so sorry. How are you? Worse. I like how you tried to use Seth Rogen as your scapegoat for that joke that is definitely yours and you're definitely proud of. I'm not you're proud. like, no, oh, that's just, I was being Seth Rogen, get it? <laughs> I'm Seth Rogen. <laughs> yeah, see? That's terrible. <laughs> oh, man. I'm uh, really stinking up the room today. Sorry, everyone. It's okay. I forgive you. Okay. How are you? I found a VHS tape. Where? Well, my mom brought it to me. So she found it. And I'm taking all the credit. Uh, You're right. Yeah, I've done that before. My dad uh, took all of our home videos and put them on DVDs. And then I went through and I, I made clips and put them on YouTube. Right. Okay. So... I have these two tapes now that my mom gave me. One of them is my Make-A-Wish trip to Walt Disneyland or World or whichever one when I was... I don't think you say Walt, right? You just say Disney? Walt Disneyland? That makes it sound like a a, a gentleman's club. <laughs> so I have a VHS tape from, I think, like 1995 uh-huh. of me... Before I went to foster care with my biological family, I went on my Make-A-Wish to Walt Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) And I have the tape. So I've sent it to be converted. Cool. To what? A flip book. (laughs) Nice. And then I found another tape. Oh, so you're saying that you haven't watched them because you don't have a VCR. Yeah, so I don't have a VCR. I've never seen these tapes, and I don't remember any of that as a kid. And I think my dad, my biological dad, is going to be in one of these videos, and I don't even know what he looks like. So hold on. How old are you in 1995? You're four years old. Four, yeah. I only have like a handful of memories from when I was four, and I think most of them revolve around Christmas and my birthday. (laughs) I don't think I have any memories. Maybe like flips. Of memories that maybe I made up, they're so unclear that I can't even confirm if they're real. 
Right. So when I was four, it was 1991. So that would have been when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 came out. <laughs> I love when you do this. Your bearings are always whenever movies came out. Yeah, yeah. Signs of the Lambs came out, but I wasn't allowed to watch that when I was four. <laughs> In 1991? Yeah, but I was like, Mom, I love Anthony Hopkins. And she's like, no. <laughs> you had that conversation when you were four? So you remember Christmas and talking about Anthony Hopkins? <laughs> no, I don't. That's a total joke. I'm trying to suggest that my parents were allowing me to watch serial killer movies as a tiny child, which is not true. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited to find out what is on these tapes. But yeah. I also don't know if it's going to open up a can of worms for me. Because it might, like, remind me of some things that I have since... Repressed? Forgotten or repressed, yeah. Do you ever have uh, memories from your childhood that dampen your day? Um, no. Usually I have memories and then I'm like... Am I gaslighting myself or did this actually happen? Mm-hmm. And then I'll talk to my parents and be like, did this happen? And they'll, they'll usually say, yeah, or like some version of it. So it's some, you're basically getting clarification from your mom about some memory that you have about an elaborate phlegm removal procedure. Phlegm removal. I yeah. think I've definitely repressed all of those. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a very good memory of my childhood. No, not not as in it's not a positive memory, but it's just not very Clear. complete. Yeah. Well, the nature of memory is like evasive and ephemeral. You get like sights and sounds and smells, but oftentimes they need to be triggered by context. So it seems to me like watching this might bring back a flood of memories. It might. Yeah, I really don't know. Yeah, for sure. When I see old photos of like my dad and I, when we traveled or did stuff for Easter sales, like I will see an outfit that I wore and I will remember how hard it was to put on, like little things (laughs) like that. I know that's really weird, but I'll remember that because when I was a kid, it was like a huge thing to get dressed uh, on my own. Like before certain orthopedic Uh surgeries, I had to go through a whole thing where I was just rolling around on the floor, like, like pulling at my, uh, at the bands of my pants, like hoping that I would eventually get dressed before the cab came to pick me up for school. <laughs> it was quite hectic. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really know like what's going to happen. I know that I can't watch this alone. Do you want to watch it anticipating that you will laugh or you want to watch it with friends anticipating that it might be a difficult watch or you just don't want to be by yourself? I just, I don't know. I don't like to do anything alone, to be honest, but... Anything? I like pooping alone. (laughs) That's basically it. Yeah, I never understood the whole concept of group poops in high school. Yeah. There was a thing among the jocks where they would, like, go play football or something, and they'd be like, hey, everyone, you want to go have a GP? And I'd be, like, sitting there after math class, and being like, uh, no. Sometimes I'll be mid-poop. (laughs) <laughs> and then an attendant will like knock on the door and be like, hey, I have a quick question. And I'm like, well, it's over now. <laughs> it's like a turtle went back in the shell. Who asks a quick question of you while you're on the can? See, the thing is, I have friends who 
in their relationships taking one person's poop and the other ones like doing a makeup. And I envy that. I want that. Not happening. I want to work up to that. I've I've been in situations where I've been uh, compelled to comply with that kind of scenario and that I do not do that. Have you ever locked eyes with someone as it plops? You've asked me this before and I said no. Have I? It's funny that I've asked you this before. <laughs> like this is a recurring thing I ask people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no change, no updates there? It still hasn't happened? No, it's your favorite icebreaker. I would love that to happen for you. <laughs> it's it's what you open with on the first date, you know? I might have to work that when you do the mix. All right, well, uh, what did I ask you? I was trying to ask you why you didn't want to be alone while watching a childhood videotape. Well, it's just, it's more fun to do stuff with people. I get that, I get that, yeah. I think you're deflecting, though, because you made it about pooping, and that's what happens when you're deflecting. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm like, difficult question, and you're like, but what about poop? I deflect with defecation a lot. <laughs> but let me try, okay, so... I think that part of me is nervous. Yeah, that, that makes I'm sense. I'm going to see something that will unearth memories that I wasn't ready to confront, or maybe I repressed for a reason. Mm-hmm. And then part of me just wants to be able to talk about what I'm seeing or remember things with someone. You know, like if yeah. I watched that alone, I'd be like, oh, wow, this reminds me of this story. But then I have no one to tell it to. So do you want to watch it with a close personal guy friend or like a lady friend? I've already picked out the person I'm going to watch it with. We've already like planned it. Interesting. Are you going to get high? I didn't consider that. Are you going to make snacks? I usually do. Okay, okay. But are you going to eat them? Because sometimes you make snacks for your guests and then you just sit there. Yeah, that's true. I probably will drink. Okay, do you know the length of the videos? No, I have no idea. You you know nothing. I literally know nothing. I know that one of them is a trip to me on Disney. I went to grab it off the shelf and saw another one right beside it that's labeled something like Anthony's birthday party. Interesting. So do you want to do you want to share some of this content with our listeners potentially on Instagram if you find clips that you think are joyous? Maybe there might well definitely I I will update you on what happens after it happens it'd be funny if you find out that your dad is like a famous person or something like i think it's probably john stamos i think your dad is john stamos he goes by yeah john stamos is one of them he has a few he's very good at changing his appearance so Uh earlier in his career he went by george clooney oh clooney right oh i see the resemblance now yeah 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 um, yeah, so I don't know. What do you think I should prepare for? In my uh, experience with you, you don't ruminate yeah. too heavily on negative thoughts, even like as you're going through a difficult situation. You know, you're generally very good at articulating concerns and anxieties and pain. I mean, you do deflect, obviously, with the poo, etc., but that's fine. Should I do it while pooing? <laughs> Uh, no, I think you should focus on the video. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think it's going to be, I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to be a positive experience. I think it, it will. I think it's largely going to be the person I chose to watch it with, I think, will make it so. Right. But I don't know. It's weird because it's been sitting on my shelf, uh, sort of in the back of my mind for years. Wait, are you talking about your your mind shelf or a literal shelf? Literally on my bookshelf. Oh. This tape has been sitting for uh, years. Okay. And it's just always been mentally shelved. And then I eventually decided I was ready for it. And now I've found someone who can do it and it's going to happen. But yeah, it, it's strange that it took me so long because I just, I wasn't sure what it's going to unearth. I don't know. Do you think it's going to be hard to see your mom? I know what she looks like. I don't think that would be hard. I've definitely reconciled with that part of my life. I don't know what my dad looks like. I'm mostly, I think it's just the curiosity thing. Like, it'll be interesting to see what I came from and maybe I'll explain why I'm so hairy. Have your parent, have your foster parents watched the video? I don't know. That's a good question. And maybe I watched it years ago. I might have. My dad took a lot of videos of my sister and I when we were kids. Yeah, that's cool. And it's really funny because cause he's kind of like a passive observer. Like he, he's not the kind of person to really um, hold events or like dictate things. So he really just is a fly on the wall. And he'll pick, he picks moments where we're doing something really silly, like swimming or walking with our crutches or walker or, or like just doing everyday things. And he happens to find them amusing does he did he have a video camera at the time he did yeah a great big honking camcorder yeah see our family didn't really have video cameras so the fact that there's video footage of me is really novel i honestly think that part of this video just happened because it was a make a wish yeah Uh, did you get a make a wish no that sucks no, I, I think I threw a lot of tantrums as a little boy, but they don't give you a make-a-wish for that. No. What would your make-a-wish have been? I, it would probably have been Batman-related. True. Did you ever see that make-a-wish where the kid becomes... Is it Batman for a day? Yeah. And, like, the whole town gets together? Yeah, and there's, like, a like, like a big brother Batman who, like, drives him around and they yeah. go, like, stop the Riddler. That's really cool. That's the coolest thing. Actually, uh, up until about seven or eight years old, I was totally obsessed with Zorro, which is like a kind of version of Batman or the root of Batman. Yeah. And so there's all kinds of Halloween pictures of me in a Zorro costume. To give you a sense of how different our parents are, we didn't watch Zorro, but we watched The Mark of Zero. (laughs) Was that like a a math entertainment video involving a Zorro shaped like a zero? It was just a parody where instead of marking everything with a Z, he would mark it with a zero. <laughs> that was the whole concept. <laughs> was it like a non-violent approachable zero? I don't understand. I don't really remember. I just remember being like, in my head, this was the thing everyone was talking about. What was your, your best subject in grade school? Like highest marks? Yeah. Like, I, I don't really know what my highest was. Maybe drama? Like, that's the one I put the most effort into. Okay, you so you didn't... Okay, that makes sense. 
I think I unfairly associate you with like being a numbers guy because of how technically adept you are. Math was not my strong suit. I liked physics. Right. Yeah, but that's because your physics teacher was funny. Yeah. And I also like math is very abstract and hard to wrap my head around, like why I care about these rules. Mm -hmm. But with physics, it's really easy to apply these rules. Right. The rules, you can literally apply the rules in the environment. Yeah. But because you're disabled, the rules of physics do not work in your favor. So you should be mad at them. I should be mad at physics. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, physics. I, I, I'll never forget this joke. My physics teacher, he had so many gems, but... Tony, if you have to say this sentence, my physics teacher had so many gems. He was so funny. <laughs> you were a fucking nerd in high school. I was, like, not paying attention. Literally just tilted back in the back of class, like, probably sleeping. And he woke me up by being like, hey, Anthony, you know, if you had wings on that thing, you'd be an inclined plane. <laughs> I remember we were doing an audio segment and we all came into class and there was a sound system like at the front of the room. And he was like, all right, uh, today's going to be a little bit different. We have a guest speaker. And then just... Like everyone looks around and he points to the subwoofer on the table. <laughs> and you're there busting a gut. I was like, this is my favorite class. <laughs> I can picture like one of those, you know, like the Dead Poet Society, but for Anthony, like in physics class. And the point after he made that stupid, like inclined plane joke, you tilted up your chair and decided to be a star student. I did. Look, like he knew that this joke not only made me laugh, but made me respect him. <laughs> so I tilted forward and paid attention. Dang, dude. He was the best. And even every test he wrote, he would like use names of the students in that class. What a in guy. every question just to like include you. Everyone would like open up his test and look through to find which question had your name in it and mm -hmm. to see if you got like a good question or it, like you could tell how close he was to you or how much he liked you based on like whether he you would be the butt of a joke in a in a test question or like, I, honestly like that's why teachers really are underpaid it's insane they, re they really are i don't really remember the teachers that were just okay but the teachers <laughs> that i loved made me care about the subject matter they made me think about, there are things, I remember I had a French teacher, and I loved French, but I think it was just because I loved this teacher. And she would, she would do, like, one of the things she always said was, if we're doing an oral exam, and you correct yourself after making a mistake, then it's the same as if you erase something on the test and write the correct answer. So she doesn't care about the mistake you made. And little, like, it's just like, she just got it, you know? She wants yeah. the kids to succeed. Yeah, the best teachers, um, they they don't really heed the bureaucratic element. They really just want the students to be able to develop learning skills. Yeah. And they treat, they treat the students like human beings and they have patience. The first time I had a math teacher in high school, they were very, very patient. Like, they had... Um, office hours after 
school where if I had questions I could go and ask. I it, it, They diffused all of the inherent stress and panic that came from numbers because I always had like learned helplessness with mathematics. And I guarantee you, had I not met my calculus teacher in grade 11, I, pr- I may not have pursued uh, computer science in university. Yeah. And was math your, your best subject? When I learned how to learn math, it became my best subject because my one asset is that I can brute force work. Like all math is, is basically, um, it's like reps, but for your mind. So I, yeah, in university, I would grind through the uh, example questions and pour over the textbook and I could always guarantee a consistent result. With other classes where you needed more of a passion or more of a natural acuity for the subject, not always necessarily the case. We're very different. I dropped out of calculus. Oh, really? In university? Yeah. I I absolutely loved it, man, because I I could just run a script, basically, that I had in my brain. And I'd be like, okay, well, I can get an A as long as I allot this amount of time to it. To me, it was just, it went back to the whole physics thing. Like, I yeah. really liked that when you learn this equation, you can apply it to this real-world situation. Yeah. And our teacher was really good at enforcing that because all of the questions we had were scenarios. It wasn't just like, what is the friction coefficient of this? Yeah, right, it's like yeah. you had to actually run it through a scenario to figure it out. So mm-hmm. it made it fun to apply it. And then it also helped contextualize. Because sometimes with calculus, I would get an answer and it would be wrong and it would be miles apart from the correct answer. But I had no concept of like the ballpark that I'm supposed to be in. Right, yeah. So, and, and like, I don't know, when you're calculating like a tangent of a curve, I get what that is abstractly. Yeah. I was never taught a relatable explanation for the real world use of that. So I just mm-hmm. didn't connect. That makes sense. I guess for me, the one reason why I'm drawn to computer science is because those math courses are very algorithmic in nature. You execute a series of steps with certain inputs and you get a specific output. And that is essentially what computers do all fucking day long, except for yeah. the coolest kind of software, which is video games. I mean, I also was in sort of computer science. Yeah. The art version of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Did you get to do improv in your version of computer science and theater? (laughs) No, we didn't have. I really missed any sort of drama. We didn't do any electives or anything. It's it's sort of surprising that you that you're such an undramatic person. Because I like drama. Yeah, like you like you like theatrics and you are capable of performance. And yet you do not have the vanity of a performer. I like to do it for a purpose. Like, <laughs> I'll play a character and I'll get really into that character. Uh-huh. But, yeah, in my day-to-day life, I'm not, like, playing a character. I, I feel yeah. like I like to keep my everyday life just me. And then when I think of playing characters, it's way more fun because you're being just absurd. Right. Yeah, you're playing. Yeah, it's just a little creative sandbox. And you can find pieces of yourself in all of those if you're able to center yourself when you're in it. Mm. 
I wonder what young Anthony was like, four-year-old Anthony. I guess we'll find out. We will. I don't know either. Like, uh, I think because it was before I had like that real initial trauma of moving out of my family home. Oh. And do you remember moving out of your family home vividly? Yeah, and it was traumatic. That sucks. So, so yeah, this video I think is all before that. So I might have been ignorant to all obviously that happening. Mm-hmm. So maybe not. I don't know. My mom is also fairly protective and I think an anxious person, like my biological mom. So maybe that came down on me as a kid, but maybe I was too young to really get any of that. I don't. I really don't know. And that's why I'm so curious because it's just so unpredictable what I'm going to see in this video. I'm I'm very very curious. I will obviously keep you posted. For sure. What were you? Any news? No, not on the personal front, really. What about the impersonal front? The impersonal front? Uh, I don't know what you mean. I don't know either, but when you said not on the personal front, I thought maybe you were saying there's something else. Well, you know, things happen on the day-to-day, of course, but not really things I like to discuss on the podcast. Right. Fair enough. Are we having a 10 minutes of silence? Do you want to? We can. Craig Ferguson style? <laughs> I was just waiting for you to have a drink. Oh, you you know what my body does when I'm going to get my coffee, eh? Yeah, it drinks. <laughs> you don't have like a special tongue. No. Like your left eyebrow raises up. <laughs> but you lift a cup up to your mouth and tilt it so gravity pours liquid into your face. It's phenomenal. Yeah, look at you applying physics. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. No, I'm just saying like, because oftentimes, you know, when you have CP, like overcoming your center of gravity to sit forward is quite a process. You seem so able-bodied when you drink. So there isn't that much of a tell. Okay. Is that offensive? I don't think so. Okay. When would it be offensive to tell someone they seem able-bodied? Hmm. Is that ever an offensive statement? Well, you seem disabled could be taken with offense because if you were to tell me in a particular scenario that I looked very disabled, it could be your way of saying that I look like I'm struggling, which if I am struggling... (laughs) That'd be such a rude way of saying that, but yes. No, I know. But that is sometimes the way in which that would be said amongst a group of people with CP. Oh, like... Yeah, I mean, like I do it a lot. I mean, like... Like struggling to drive up a ramp and be like, oh, so disabled. Right. Yeah. And that's not really an adjective that we ever used toward ourselves before Ottawa. When when you say those things, you can be you could be recognizing a mutual struggle and being like, I could appreciate right now that maybe you need help or I need to stop and wait for you to complete this this task, which can be extremely that can be a very awesome. <laughs> can be a huge relief. Yeah, it's therapeutic. Yeah. If I'm just trying to do something and someone says I look very disabled as a way of telling me that you're overcompensating, there's a coffee cup at the top of a shelf in your kitchen cabinet and we don't have an attendant to get it. And I decide, don't worry, I'll get it. And someone says, in the process of me trying to get the cup, you look so disabled right now. What they're saying is, 
sit the fuck back down and wait for the attendant. If I said that to you, though, I would say it only to make you laugh enough to fall back in your chair. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although I do remember one time visiting you at your house. And I did ask if I could sit in one of your in one of your lazy boys, uh-huh. and you said you you like why do you have to sit there? You don't have to sit there. You're just showing off. And <laughs> <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> you have two wheelchairs. I wanted to hang out with Jack, and he was in the corner of the room. <laughs> but do you think there's a world where me saying, "Wow, you look so able-bodied." When you do that, could be an insult. I guess if I seem really surprised, it could be condescending. I don't, it depends like how that person sees themselves toward that particular task. Like if I say, like, I really struggle with transferring to my bed, and then you're like, what's the problem? And then I show you, and you're like, you look so able bodied right now. What are you complaining about? Then that's offensive. Yeah, because I'm I'm like minimizing your struggle. Yeah, but it but if I am bringing a coffee cup up to my face and I'm worried about splashing my nose in the middle of you making a poop joke while I'm sipping, and you say you look very able-bodied right now, I might think, "Oh, that's nice, thank you, Tony," right. and then I wouldn't spit coffee all over myself. It's all context. Yeah. See, but that's the thing about pursuing potentially edgy subject matter with close friends or joking around in in those situations is that you do kind of have to risk pushing buttons with those adjectives. I think every time you're trying to get a laugh, it's a risk. Oh, it is certainly a risk. If it's not a risk, it's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if it's a safe joke, then it is not funny, yeah. which is why most puns are not funny because it's literally just a reconfiguration of semantics. Yeah. It's, it's almost like someone's like, I understand humor, but I choose not to apply it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good point. Says the man who loves puns. I don't love them. I just get don't sometimes... Don't even get... pretend. <laughs> humpty Humpty. <laughs> because he's it's his first date. He's going to get laid. And so... <laughs> so... <laughs> Tony, I feel like I need to be your your fucking physics teacher right now and compel you to sit forward. Yeah, I guess it was a pun, though. True. But maybe that was just like my first exposure. Maybe there's something about dad jokes where it's like, this man has something to teach me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. They're fun. Speaking of fun, should we talk about a movie? We can talk about a movie if you like. Can I ask you a question before we get into the movie? Can you picture yourself sitting down and having a casual small talk kind of conversation with Joaquin Phoenix? Oh, yeah. I feel like he's probably pretty interesting. Well, I suppose that's not really what I asked. Do you mean that he's... (laughs) (laughs) I suppose you didn't really answer the question. (laughs) No, but like... So I would I would agree, I suppose, that his innate weirdness would make him interesting to be in the presence of. Mm-hmm. But if you sat down to speak with him, do you feel like it would actually be a reciprocal discussion? Um, he seems very aloof, but I, 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 there's a certain level of introspection that has to come from character acting. Because I don't think you can 
act as someone else without first understanding how you are as a baseline. I would understand that, yeah. Because in order to disguise all the things that make you you, you have to be aware of those elements. Yeah. And then be deliberately disguising them. Right. But I guess there's a point of introspection or a degree such that attaining it means that you might risk excluding everyone else. Oh, for sure. There's definitely selfish introspection. Yeah, uh, because the one thing that I've sort of noticed about him in these movies that I've watched with him lately where he is supposed to be such a big star and reputable and command the screen, it's not that I disagree with that, but I also think he's somewhat ingenerous to his co-stars. Like, I, I don't see him really connecting very much with other people because he's so focused on being the character that he is portraying. Yeah. And so it's kind of like when you and I are talking about movies and I stop looking at you yeah. while I'm talking and then you're like, okay, well, I'm not here anymore. So I'm going to insist that Jamie said, but dynamite. You're right. But you did. <laughs> Please let us know. Don't because We were editing that episode last week. Listen to last week's episode and listen for the phrase, but dynamite. <laughs> because Jamie says, not intentionally, but he says, but dynamite. <laughs> and I was not paying attention up until that point. He said, but dynamite. And I sprung into life. And he's yeah. like, did you just say, but dynamite? And Jamie was like, can I keep going, please? I'm in the middle of a discussion. It was like I called you a reclined plane. <laughs> Inclined. Oh, pardon me. That's okay. I can't measure up to your funny physics teacher. <laughs> That's all right. Shout out, Mr. Close. <laughs> I see what you're saying, though. Joaquin Phoenix is... He does seem hard to connect with. Yeah, his entire... Like, his movies tend to revolve around him. But it's not... In the same sense that Jared Leto wants his, you know, wants to be the orbit of his films, his universes. I think he's just focusing so hard on trying to dive into a role that yeah. he almost has blinders onto everyone around. Yeah, but that that seems very lonely. It might be, yeah. Maybe that's why he was such a convincing, depressed joker. Right, and potentially even a convincing depressed, alcoholic, disabled guy in yeah. the movie that we watched. Yeah, because when I think about the Joker, like uh, Zazie Beats is in it, and uh, Francis Conroy, wonderful, wonderful character actors from Six Feet Under. All kinds of interesting actors are in the Joker, but I don't remember them. I can't, I, all I remember is them being set dressing to Joaquin. Yeah, but I, I think that's more... The direction of that movie rather than oh for sure for sure it's a character study yeah and it's like the character study is literally the name of the film you know it never looks away from him nor i guess really should it now so the interesting thing is that despite all that i'm saying joaquin is the gravitational pull of all his films he also doesn't really seem overly arrogant no he doesn't there's that that kooky Oscar speech that he did, which was sort of all over the place and kind of incoherent. If I had to guess, 
I feel like he's just sort of an anxious man who gets caught in his own head because of anxiety Uh and then has found a way to use that as a tool for diving into other characters, maybe as a form of escape for himself. Right, exactly, yeah. I guess all of this is to say that I really cannot picture sitting down with Joaquin Phoenix and talking to him about like the weather <laughs> or I don't know, like the, the most recent episode of Barry. I, can, I, can, I just can't do it. He doesn't seem. But maybe that's because he's always so lost in his characters that it's hard mm-hmm. to get a sense of who he is at, outside of all that. Like he cares more about showing you this other version of himself, which is the Joker or John Callahan, some character that he's playing. So it's mm-hmm. hard to... Like, you know, Seth Rogen is the same in all of his movies, right? It's like Seth Rogen is 90% of all of the characters he plays with like a little flavor of different people. For sure. His public persona is the guy that you smoke weed with at 3 a.m. on Saturday night. Right. So it's very easy to relate to who he is on your couch talking about the weather or sports. Mm-hmm. But Joaquin is very much the opposite. He just dives into a role, gets so deep into that role that you almost don't see him anymore. See, that seems to be also the cornerstone of of um, classical movie stars, where they are likable, they have a strong screen presence, but you can't see many dimensions beyond that. You only see what they offer relative to the role. Well, I think that's also partly our fault as the viewers is yeah. that we pigeonhole them into these different roles. So like when Leonardo DiCaprio is all of these great different roles where he shows off different acting skills and different characters that he can do, it's hard to reconcile with who he is beyond maybe some really superficial ideas of him. Mm-hmm. And like I think that is sometimes a byproduct of acting is you lose yourself in these characters and then it's hard to come back out of them and remember who you were before. Mm-hmm. If your occupation is escapism, then who are you? I heard Jim Carrey talk about it once in one of those actor roundtable interviews. Mm-hmm. And he described it as he feels like a person that's been broken into a million pieces. And so he likes to be able to get a new role, reconfigure those pieces into mm-hmm. a new character, and then try different things. But every time he reconfigures a piece, it's hard to basically reconfigure yourself the way you were beforehand. Like if you shatter a vase, you can try to put it back together. You remember what it used to look like, but it's never going to be the same. It's just so fascinating to me that we, um, we bestow the responsibility of reflecting our our life experiences or our stories back to us, like onto these people who haven't really had lives that resemble ours, or at least by the time we do see them on the silver screen, their experiences no longer resemble that of the common person. And so it it begs the question, like, 
like are all of our expectations of life sort of shaped around these highly performative narratives that aren't really real, but then whatever, I'm getting too wrapped up in my own shit. I heard a quote once and I don't remember who said it and I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like art is not the mirror that reflects the world or reality, but it is the hammer that shapes it. Yeah. Which is really interesting. You can see that. And I, I, I guess the whole reason why I sort of started the discussion here with how human or relatable um, Joaquin Phoenix is, is like I found him really compelling in the movie that we watched this week. Me too. Um, I don't think that the individual beats of the film that we watched were all that compelling. Like the, the, wait, let me, let me, we should start for once. I'm the one reminding you that we need to introduce the movie. Okay. So after last week's torture of watching the butterfly effect, mm-hmm. I said to Emphasis you, Emphasis on but. But butterfly effect. Mm-hmm. I told you <laughs> I'm picking the movie this week. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty happy with this movie choice. I think it I think it was overall excellent. Yeah. But I have very specific reasons for thinking so. And I don't think that taking the the story or this the script verbatim really arrives at why it's appealing. Well, what did we watch? So we we watched Don't Worry, You Won't Get Far on Foot, which is a bad title for a film because it's not a title, it's a sentence. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a compelling title. Like that phrase has an intrinsic curiosity to it. Yeah, it's a funny, I think it's probably a funny joke, especially when you, it is a joke, by the way. Once you learn the context, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. It's also the caption of one of John Hel- Callahan's comics. And there are several of his comics that are drawn in real time on the screen throughout the film. And some of them, I think, are really funny. Yeah. So John Callahan is or was a cartoonist. He was injured in a car accident, became quadriplegic, and basically wrote a bunch of these sort of subversive, edgy comics. Just laughing at society, laughing at himself, but it was edgy. Pushing the envelope, I would say, in terms of being offensive sometimes. He actually has a show that we will probably eventually, or we will definitely eventually cover. I think we should. And I think even watching this film might have given me more stamina for that cartoon, if that makes sense understanding the story behind it so callahan was an alt cartoonist much like robert crumb each of his panels uh typically comment on disability in some way not always of course Mm. uh he seemed to be quite progressive i think he was active uh in the late 80s to excuse me early aughts and uh quite prolific i mean that alone kind of endears me to him so this movie is basically about his life. It's just a, it, it is a biopic. It sort of has a non-chronology in its storytelling, which I also somewhat appreciated. It kind of oscillates between Callahan's um, meetings with his AA group and a speech that he's giving 
about his life for the University of Portland or whatever university operates out of there. I, I don't know. And uh, also just the first two decades of his life before becoming disabled. And it kind of moves through time very fluently or fluidly, uh, kind of in the same rhythm that brain time does, you know, the nature of memory. We were just talking about that earlier when I asked Tony about what life was like when he was four. And yeah, that's a kind of a device that I really appreciate because I feel like a lot of movies are afraid to play with time. And I think when you're when your goal throughout a film is to create a complete portrait of a person's life, you should probably be fluid like that. Because I don't think when we reflect upon our experiences that we reflect with a chronology. What I really liked about this movie is that it didn't necessarily feel like a movie about a disabled guy. If anything, it was a movie about a guy overcoming or recovering from alcoholism who happens to be disabled. The disability was obviously present, and in, in my opinion, maybe checked off more disability boxes than a lot of the movies we watched about yeah. disability, but it, it, it felt more like we were empathizing with his emotional state rather than yep. his physical abilities. Yes, and the interesting thing is that it has all of the hallmarks of a movie that is possibly too fixated on the disability origin story. Like it shows us Callahan's early years of drinking far too heavily, uh, the reckless behavior that led to his car crash. It shows us him recovering like in a, in a spinal uh, surgical unit in a hospital. Yep. Um, there are several rather uncomfortable scenes of him receiving physiotherapy and conversing with uh his uh, physio at the time. There's one discussion with, between them earlier on in the film where he's not, he hasn't yet come to terms with the fact that he is disabled. It's deeply uncomfortable because his neck is in a brace and he's bound to a bed and he's being stood up uh, for, for circulation purposes. And he just sort of seems like he's uh, in a ton of pain. I guess the context is that before, even before his accident, this clip happens right after his accident. But even before his accident, he doesn't really have a good idea of who he is or who he wants to be, where he's headed. He's just an alcoholic, but not even an alcoholic where I don't think he would self identify as an alcoholic yet at this stage. But he just realizes that he's dependent on it. And so he's still kind of. Um, not bitter, but apathetic to the world around him. Mm -hmm. He's kind of just disconnected from the people around him and his environment. And so then he gets into this accident, wakes up in like a full body brace. His doctor is super curt. You don't have a clip of the doctor, right? No, the doctor... Uh is played by one of your favorite comedians. Yeah. The guy on uh, Instagram who does the face swap with his voices. I can't remember. Kyle his... Dunnigan. Kyle Dunnigan, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Kyle Dunnigan is is ushering these um, these uh, trainees throughout the hospital. And he just sort of passes by Callahan, like describes the nature of his spinal cord injury, sort of disregards everything that he's saying throughout 
Callahan and just moves on to the next subject. But even before that, the doctor who initially sees him right after he wakes up is basically like, yeah, it's loud in here. Hey, yeah, well, lots of people are dying. You might die. I don't really know. Um, your friend's fine, but yeah, it's not looking good for you. Uh, good luck. See you later. Everyone around him is kind of incredibly jaded. Yeah, they're just like, almost like they're blaming him. Like, this is what you get. This is what you get for driving drunk. Yeah. And the the sort of interesting thing is that the the camera the entire time he's in recovery is centered explicitly on Joaquin's face. So you get you kind of get this weird sense that he's in purgatory. Everyone's treating him like he's already dead and it's only a matter of time. So he's just sort of waiting in this incredibly uncomfortable position to die. Yeah. Rooney Mara comes along and uh, injects a little bit of hope into him. And what do you say to God? What about when you're talking to the devil, John? I'll give you anything. Anything you want, just change this. And you're from Oregon? That's your home? Yes. She starts asking him about himself and treating him like a person. She tells him that he's handsome. She tells him that he's strong for having survived this situation. And it's it's clear that she likes him. See, that wasn't clear to me. I thought she was just being super friendly. This is definitely something that I deal with. But when, if someone, if I was in this situation and some, you know, nurse or recreational assistant, whatever this person's title is, came in and was like, you're really handsome, wow. I would feel like that's so condescending. Whereas like, I think you're supposed to take it as a compliment on his behalf. But to me, I was just like, she definitely did humanize him. But that particular comment, to me, at least I would have registered that as condescending. It's maybe the movie's only flaw is that it, it really does idolize Rooney Mara and position her as like the angel of disabled hope. Well, I'm guessing that that is how John Callahan felt. Right. When, you, when you're in this slump, and you feel like you've hit rock bottom, and then you actually go even further, mm-hmm. and you become quadriplegic, and then Rooney Mara comes in. Yeah, I feel like you do feel hope again, and I'm sure that's what he felt. Right. I chose to take that clip there because he he because uh, he's bargaining, yeah. and like he's he's trying to say like you know I do anything not to be in this situation. And- Why me? Yeah, and normally I would find this kind of scene in these movies like very, very rote, like way too overplayed. But there's something about this movie about how imperfect of a person Joaquin is. Yeah. Uh, and just like how much visible pain he appears to be in in this particular moment. There's a there's a kind of a visceral reality to it. And it helps take you through these beats that shouldn't normally be satisfying. Uh, so it, it really does work. And I think as the movie kind of evolves, like you said, it becomes more and more about him addressing the demons that he had before his disability. Yeah. And so 
the the disability element uh like leaves center stage but is still like treated by the film with an incredible amount of respect and with a lot of uh like eye for detail yeah it wasn't like like particular scenes many scenes centered around disability but only because of course they did. He was disabled. Yeah. It wasn't like the movie was trying to be like, look at how it would be if you were disabled in this situation. It was like, look how it was for John Callahan trying to get a drink because he's an alcoholic, but also quadriplegic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is, too, is that it's it's in glamorous. I've, I've said this a yeah. bunch of times, but... You don't get the scenes where where the the movie is like bashing you over the head with the progression of Callahan's disability. There are many shots of him driving around Portland uh, uh, in the rain, like trying to get to venues in time with his drawings or, you know, navigating pedestrians, like just living his life. And it's the most lived in portrait of disability I've ever seen. I I I know his struggle when he gets caught in the rain and he calls his version of motion specialties to try to get help and Carrie Brownstein answers. Disability Resource Center. Hey, it's John. Just a moment. This is Suzanne. Hey, Suzanne. It's John. A chair broke down. Can somebody come down here to help me? John. John, this is the third time in a couple of months this has happened. You know, we have cutbacks ever since the new president came in. We have our... Oh, oh, please don't start. Please don't start. Suzanne? John, I'm sorry. I do not make the rules. What did I do to you? What did I do to piss you off so much? Why are you going to treat me like this? You know, I hear you're putting a lot more mileage on that wheelchair than the average quadriplegic. Yeah, because I'm an active worker. I'm not a fucking nursing home vegetable. So I'm just asking for a little bit of goddamn help. Take care, John. Please, please, I fucking beg you. I ask for forgiveness. Take care of yourself, please. Please, please. <laughs> just the way she says please after take care of yourself is just like, fuck off, John. We don't have the resources for you. Yeah, please hang up. I've had this happen to me. So many times I asked to get my chair serviced and they'll be changing my tires or my battery They'll basically try to lecture me on overusing my wheelchair. They'll be like, oh, I remember one time I had a a guy say, you go fast in this chair too much. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's pretty clear that you're going very fast. Otherwise, this wouldn't happen so quickly. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's not that fast of a chair. There are definitely faster chairs. He's like, yeah, but they're not meant to be going full speed. They're meant to be going walking speed. It's like, well, well, what is the point? Or I'll have to change the batteries. And they'll be like, you shouldn't need to change the batteries again. You're using your chair too much. That is so baffling to me. It's like, (laughs) you live your life too much. Stay home in bed, asshole. Your chair can only go so, so fast for so long. Yeah. What, what is their training like? What, 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 what does the, 
what does the manual look like for a power chair technician such that it informs them to tell clients to stop using their chair as intended? Could you imagine if you went for a physical and your doctor said to you, geez, like there's a lot of stiffness in your hips. You really need to stop running. Yeah, but I think doctors probably do say that sometimes. They're like, yeah, I mean, you're an athlete. It's going to happen. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm just saying I, you're right. I mean, I suppose overuse is a thing and you can get tendonitis and you can get arthritis or, or like premature arthritis in your joints. Repetitive stress injury. Re- yeah. Repetitive stress, which I've experienced. But but you know what I'm saying? Like an able-bodied person would be rewarded for living. They would at least be helped, right? Like when you when you go in for carpal tunnel syndrome, they're not like, well, maybe use the computer too much. You ever think about that? They're like, yeah, we get it. That's maybe here are some things you can do. Here's a better ergonomic keyboard. Here's yeah. like a wrist pad or whatever. But they're not just like stop typing. Yeah, it's it, it's it's astounding to me though that that a power chair technician could get uh, paternal. Yeah. You better stop driving so quickly, there, Mister uh, Disabled Guy, or you know, like just <laughs> horrible. Fuck off. Yeah, but it was very insightful because you can tell that this story was written by John Callahan because it's very informed. You know, like. Some of these issues, or, or even the way he reacts to some of these issues, can only, you would only know about it if you're in living it. Yeah, I've experienced that rage before, and I've projected it at people who have insulted me while I've been trying to get assistance. Yeah. And I, I and that rage, that, rage, that uh, indignation, it comes across in full force. I, like, we, I was, I almost rejoiced after this scene, you know? And uh, it also doesn't, it's not overplayed. It's not melodramatic. It's a, it's a very proportional anger. Yeah. This movie checks off a lot of boxes. It really does, man. It, 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 all that stuff that I said about Joaquin earlier, having that star power, this is a, like that, his, his performance is very intricate. I didn't feel like he was doing a crude impression of disability. No, honestly, there were moments where like he's, opening a bottle or crumpling up a piece of paper. And I'm like, good for you for not overacting that. Honestly, I feel like John Callahan in real life would have struggled even more to do some of those things. And Joaquin was like, I'm just going to act because I'm, I'm going to be disabled in this scene, but not to the point where we're focusing on that and detracting from the story or the character motivations. Yeah, the ca- the the camera doesn't leer on him in these moments. It's not about it's not about achieving the aesthetic of disability. It's literally that in every scene where he's in his chair and struggling, the scene is about the problem that he's trying to solve. Whether he's literally just trying to get a drink or trying to commute or whatever it is he needs to do. Working actually follows a couple times like huge stunt falls that look like he actually just face plants into cement a couple times yeah we should be clear it's like he's driving on the road and then he you watch it in real time you you watch him hit a bump and literally fall out like i don't think yeah i don't think they had the budget or the time to swap out for a stunt coordinator and 
it, 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 I was shocked. Like it happens twice. And I'm like, oh no, do not do that in your power chair like that. The center of gravity is shit. What are you doing? And so very, very real. Yeah. The other thing about his appearance, he's plain, like very, very plain. Yeah. There's nothing especially interesting about his wardrobe. It, like, you know, he just looks like an average, like a, like a, an everyday disabled person. The, it helps too that we don't know what Callahan looks like. So we don't have this uh, idea in our head of whether or not he's adhering to the impression of the character in full. It's not like theory of everything. What do you mean? I knew what he looked like. Oh, you did? I, I didn't. I've never seen. Well, um, maybe I have, but I forgot. Well, we had watched one of the episodes of Wads together. Mm-hmm. And then I think I looked him up on Wikipedia and promptly forgot. But that was before yeah. that was before we had recorded a full uh, episode of the podcast. We were still in pre-production, I think. It was a long time ago, but I still had registered him in my mind as really fame. Ah, uh, okay. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that it is it doesn't commit the cardinal sins. No. I mean, one, okay, there's one thing that I never brought up before. It's been in a lot of movies, mm-hmm. disability movies, where they add in wheelchair noises. And it drives me crazy for some reason. Ah. Whenever the chair is moving, they add in these like whirring noises that are, to me, just so fake. And I don't really know what the point is. Other than to remind you that he's in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's maybe what it is that the noise isn't that realistic to me. So I understand that post production fully is very common and in every movie. But for some reason, in every movie with a wheelchair, there's a wheelchair that moves and they add in some bizarre stock whirring sound, breaks the fourth wall for me. That's the only thing this movie did that I noticed that I was like, again? Really? Yeah. I, I guess I don't really have an ear for that kind of stuff. I feel like I need to reiterate how novel it is to actually have stunt coordination in a movie with a disabled person. The velocity with which Callahan's chair travels in this film and the, the clarity of the shots too, like he's always in full frame and there's not a whole lot of cuts. It's pretty cool, I have to say. And you can tell he's like, actually driving this chair. He actually is decently good at driving, but it doesn't feel like he's a pro, but it feels like he's probably about as good as John Callahan would have been. Yeah. I I can imagine being him and driving in those situations. Like I can put myself in his chair. And there were a couple of moments where he used his chair as like physical interaction with the environment where he would like push a character or push an object or or even just as movement, he would circle his chair around someone rather than looking him up and down. Like he seemed to kind of have an idea, Joaquin did, of how someone in a chair might physically express themselves. There's also when he gets exacerbated, like when he when he gets angry. He is overwhelmed in a way that I can relate with. Yeah, it's very subtle, but you realize where the anger is coming from. Yeah. And it, it, it feels informed. 
It does, yeah. He has a number of conversations with, uh, because I'm not sure if Tony mentioned this, but uh, Callahan is a foster child and he does not know his his uh, biological mother. And that's a, that is a cornerstone of the film. It's the root of his addiction issues. So <clears throat> the movie revolves around it. And there's a confrontational scene between him and a foster home coordinator who refuses to hand over his childhood records. And that discussion is really deeply uncomfortable to watch, but for all the right reasons. I don't think I have a clip of that one specifically. No, it's but just... he was. Like, you could tell you were just mad at the guy. It wasn't, again, it, this conflict had nothing to do with the disability. Yes. I, I, I would even say that maybe the experience of watching this film isn't traditionally entertaining or even enjoyable. Really? I liked it quite a bit. Well, I w- like it was charming and it was skillfully made and it was good, but there were some stretches in which I was bored or I wanted I wanted the film to pick up the pace. I wasn't so much interested in his alcoholism at the start of the movie, but that's a personal matter. And um some of the scenes where he's in AA, like the the conversations were a little bit drawn out. But the point I was trying to make is that I, I like those because it felt very grounded. Yeah, it felt like a like a character study. Uh, it felt like a thoughtful movie. There wasn't a whole lot of urgency in the film, and it also sort of helped to prevent Callahan from being the meat of the movie. Like there are, he has uh, an AA sponsor played by Jonah Hill, and Jonah Hill does a really good job, I have to say. Yeah. No, I like him a lot. Yep. There's other bit characters who have other problems and their little moments are enjoyable. I like that uh, Callahan as a character was super messy and I like that the movie was boring on occasion. I I took a, a clip of the opening line of the film or of one of the opening anecdotes in Callahan's AA meeting because I wanted to... I wanted to stress that I I liked the opening note of the movie. It's basically just a a woman explaining her reason for for, uh, joining AA to begin with when her her life sort of fell apart. And while it does seem ultimately deeply depressing, I think it kind of sets the right tone and I'll elaborate afterwards. One day I just like took up all my clothes and walked down the street and... The mailman found me and he brought me home and called my husband like I was a child. And I, you know, I'm still wearing my wedding ring, but I'm divorced now and I'm, I'm much happier. Maybe life's actually not supposed to be as meaningful as we think it is. And I, again, I know that's really depressing. It's just a woman describing the... Um, not being able to confine herself to domesticity and rebelling against it and realizing that she needed a change. And um, I think that sets the tone for the movie because it's like, this movie is not going to inspire you. You know, it's not going to give you a happy ending wrapped up in a nice little bow. It's going to, the characters will be imperfect and deeply flawed and uncomfortable. I think the discomfort of this film is essential. It covers a lot. 
Like if we go through the list of disability stuff that it covers, it might be more than most things. There's leg bag incidents. There's yelling at attendants, which we'll talk about. There's wheelchairs dying in the rain. There's sex uh, with disability. There's showering. There's showering in a kitchen on a tarp. There's welfare and like cutbacks and funding cuts. It really covers a lot of the disability topics that we like to talk about in a movie without without feeling like it's and now we should talk about this. It doesn't seem like it knows that it's working through quote unquote the issues of disability. It's all very fluid. This is something that I thought about quite a bit watching this because we've talked about the show Quads, which initially we sort of shelved and we didn't really relate to. Again, both of us, I think, would agree that now we're more open to exploring it. Yeah, we know we like the creator. Yeah, because we've seen his story and so it's a little bit easier to connect to the art when you know the creator. But sometimes I... We've talked about how someone who acquires a disability doesn't come at it in the same way we would expect them to. Like, they almost approach disability superficially or in a way that just doesn't feel like they get it, right? Like, it's like when an able-bodied person sees three disabled people in a room and goes, oh, it's a party. Or traffic jam. Or when a disabled comedian uses the term stand-up as a subversive joke about himself. Yeah. It's one of those things where we cringe when we see that because it's so redundant to us and so overplayed. But from the able-bodied perspective, it's not. And sometimes I've found, like with this quads show that we've yet to cover, some of it felt a little too on the nose for my taste. And after working through this movie, I'm starting to understand that you and I have been disabled from birth and have a full lifetime between the two of us of being disabled. Mm-hmm. But someone who's able-bodied and then one day gets into an accident and their life changes and they're now disabled, they're experiencing all of this stuff for the first time. So yeah. it's a lot easier for me, after thinking about it this way, uh-huh. it's easier to understand that they might be on the nose because they haven't experienced it over and over again. It isn't yet redundant to them because it isn't overplayed in their life. Yeah, that the duality of their identity far skewers to the able-bodied side. Right. They've been able-bodied their whole life that all of a sudden they're disabled wrestling with this kind of identity crisis. Mm -hmm. And so all of these tricks that we've all taken to reconcile with that, they have to do now much later in life. So when you see someone who has an acquired disability in a mid-stage of their life, make a joke or make some reference that feels on the nose or overplayed to us. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of why. 
And that makes total sense. That's a very uh, empathetic take, Tony. I congratulate you for that shit. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Congratulations. Hmm. Should we knock off a couple more of the points that you raised about the movie's strengths? Let's talk about sex, Jamie. Let's talk about... You and me. All right, let's do it. After your accident, John, your body doesn't have ordinary psychogenic erections anymore. So you have to use reflexogenic erections. Reflexogenic erections? Sounds sexy. So how would I go about achieving that? Can you demonstrate? Behave. Have you thought about asking that little nurse of yours to sit on your face some night, John? That's a shocking, yet wildly exciting idea. But no, I mean, would that be appropriate? Who cares if it's appropriate? My job's to get you the erection. That's all I care about. Or she could say is no, and if she says no, then you come back and ask me. That's a deal. Flexogenic simply means that it has to be from the touch, okay? I actually spliced that conversation together from a number of uh, clips because it, throughout her explanation, it cuts to John trying her advice and succeeding to some extent. To some extent? She literally sits on his face. (laughs) Yeah, like, sorry, uh, chronologically speaking, his first couple attempts uh, only elicit like a flirtatious laugh. But then after the point of that, of the end of the clip that we just played, he eventually gets sit on by a pretty lady, which, you know, congratulations. I needed this coach in my 20s. <laughs> Someone to be like, who cares if it's inappropriate? Try it out and see. I'm just here for your directions. What was the word that she used? Reflexogenic? Reflexogenic. Could you could you weave that into a pickup line somehow? Yeah, I mean that's like whenever someone says a really thoughtful phrase to me that makes me think about the world a little bit differently, uh, I have a reflexogenic erection. <laughs> I don't think that's the definition, right? But I've decided that's what happens. It's like a. It has to be from touch. Ah, uh, okay. So you. Uh, someone touches you on the shoulder and you introspect a little and you get a reflexogenic boner, yeah. which is a compliment. It's a compliment. Yeah, and I wish I could just say that. It's a compliment. And I wish I had someone in my corner being like, just ask her to sit in her face. What's the worst that could happen? Right. You're, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't. You're a daredevil in your chair. You, you, you take risks all the time. I think this is purely just a... Romantic hang-up. I think it is too, but like, I'm always afraid of crossing a boundary and then losing the respect that I've gained or losing the friendship that I already have. I'm very bad at reading those signs. What signs? That she wants to sit on you? If I thought that there's a good chance you would say yes, Uh then I would ask, but I often assume that it's not a good chance. Right, you're not taking the risk. No. Imagine, like, if I did that with an attendant and it didn't work out. That's different because you're... Well, that's what he did. Oh, I, yeah, you're right. Shit, you got me there. Anyone who is disabled that is listening, uh-huh. I encourage you to uh, <laughs> just ask her to sit on your face. <laughs> See what happens. I'm just here for your erections. Yeah, reflexogenic. Yeah. Yep. So 
I think because you are the type of man to put your chair on maximum speed and hurdle yourself down cardiac hill at Carleton University, mm-hmm. you're not actually afraid of a woman sitting on your face. You're afraid of her sitting on your heart. <laughs> First of all, I'm not afraid of either. I'm truthfully just afraid she'll be offended that I asked. Okay. But she didn't sit on my heart. I don't believe you. Fun fact, my heart is one of the few muscles completely unaffected by my disability. Here's your star. Thank you. I'd like to know the congratulations. <laughs> no, that is good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot join me writing homework cards. <laughs> good to hear about your heart. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Signed, Jamie. That that means we can go for a schwitz when I move to Ottawa. I would schwitz with you. I would schwitz with you. I would sit on your face after. (laughs) Uh. Oh, sorry. You were supposed to ask me. Yeah. Okay. What what one do you want to cover next? Uh, Let's talk about the the second interaction with the ODSP woman when she comes to visit Joaquin at his home. Hello, John. Come in. Suzanne. What a lovely surprise. Where'd you get the money for these posters? Friends, family. You gotta write it down. You have to report it. Any gift or donation. Well, I bummed a cigarette down at Old Town the other day. Should I report that too? Mr. Callahan, I'm sorry. Do not make the rules. Simply trying to get you to understand the gravity of the situation, your cartoon earnings could force your benefits to be terminated. Well, how, how do I avoid that? I, I don't know. But, uh, it doesn't look good for you. Uh, who do I speak to about the specific regulations on this? I mean, how can I be penalized for making a little money this month? Mr. Callahan, we have reason to believe you're a bit of a shady character, okay? I just don't want your benefits to be terminated. Shady. Fuck you. So yeah, like uh, all of that is so real. So real. Pitch perfect. I remember when I was, I think, 18, maybe 19. No, I was 21 because that's when my children did funding cut off. I had to apply for disability supports, but I had like some amount of money saved up. So I read through all the legal documentation, all this fine print, and found out that if you opened up a specific kind of account for disability savings, then you could put money in there and it wouldn't count as the amount of money that you audited for when you're signing up for benefits. Basically, if you have too much money, then the government says, just use your savings. To support yourself. If you have too much taxable income. Right. So if you put if you put the money into an RDSP or your tax-free savings, then they can't fuck with you. And basically you have to fight for your own independence, financial security, because the government has set up disability benefits in a way that basically forces you to be dependent on it. Because if you have a certain amount of money a certain amount of income, then they already won't give you more 
to pay for your benefits. But then if you have a certain amount saved up, they just expect you to burn through that for all of your expenses. Which doesn't factor into the fact that when you have a disability, your cost of living is inevitably higher. You have to pay for medical equipment, probably prescriptions, medical devices, chair repairs, etc. It adds up very quickly. So if I make, say, 50K, that's a lot different than if an able-bodied person makes 50K who doesn't have to pay for all of these additional things. For sure. Yeah, it's forced dependence. You're not able to save to get off the system. Let's say the government gives you $800 a month. You save half of that somehow. Then the government goes, oh, well, then I guess we're giving you too much. They don't praise you for being financially responsible. It's actually better to just burn through that, get a higher phone bill or something, so that you keep getting that income because they don't. Anyway, I'm off on a venting tangent, but this is very real. I remember one time uh, several years ago, like eight years ago, I missed out on my buddy's bachelor trip to uh, New Orleans because the cost of the trip, if I were to have taken it out of my TFSA, it would have raised my income for that particular year or whatever, such that I could jeopardize my rental subsidy. So the cost of the trip would have been whatever it was, plus like market value of rent for a, a stretch of time after I had spent the money to go. Yeah, it's it's outrageous the games that you have to play to sustain yourself. Not to mention, this is something that's been looming over my head. I make a livable income, mm-hmm. and that's great. I hope I can sustain it, meaning I hope I can keep working. But as I age, my disability will inevitably worsen or progress, and it will be harder and harder for me to stay in a job force. I will be in the job force for fewer years than the average person because of my disability. So I'm going to work for, let's say, 10, 15 years, maybe 20 if things go well, and then I basically have to retire. And if I retire, the government's going to see the amount of money that I made or that I saved and then deem me as ineligible for benefits. So then I'm just going to quickly burn through that retirement money, living hopefully as frugally as possible, eventually probably go back on disability benefits Mm -hmm. and have to sustain myself again on peanuts. And that model is so broken because it almost discourages you from wanting to get a job in the first place. I get it. I have the same anxiety. I see like retirement notifications at my work for people who've been with my company for like 30 years. And I'm like, I'm only, I got seven and I feel like I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it to, to a reasonable retirement age. So everything that I'm saving now, which I get mocked for by my friends, like, Oh, you should just go live your life. Like, what are you doing? I just keep thinking about the time of my life when I get to when I need to retire. And most of my income at that point is going to go toward 
all my expenses for my chair and and like renovations for my home and the cost of having a caretaker come in and look after me. It's like maybe I have a few years or a small window where I can go on vacations and live like an able-bodied person and you know enjoy my money, but I probably I I probably just out of anxiety for the future will not do that unless you make a certain high amount of money where you can sustain your current cost of living and basically pay for all of your medical needs out of pocket, mm-hmm. which is a high amount. If you let's say you make an average of like fifty to hundred K, somewhere in that range, it's very difficult to manage you know, like rent or whatever bills you have to pay on top of all of the medical equipment that you need or medical supplies or any sort of expenses that you have to pay for mm-hmm. that it actually ends up netting you less money than if you just make peanuts on ODSP or some other disability support program and let the government pay for all of that stuff for you so it, it almost discourages people from trying to get gainful employment it sure does at that point, you're in the work for more altruistic reasons for occupation of your mind, <laughs> yeah, which is also important. I remember saving ODSP money to the point where I had enough to start like an investment account, but mm-hmm. then being afraid you'd get caught. Yeah, like ODSP would be like, well, obviously you were just giving you too much money then, instead of okay. being like, good job being frugal. Imagine if like there were incentive programs where if you saved enough, they just made your chair more pimp. <laughs> yeah, I had to have this conversation with my financial advisor because I just hired a new one. And that's how I vet them. But, Dang, did you shit can the other one? Uh, we just didn't have the same values. Uh-huh. But um, when you when I was shopping around for one, I basically had to explain, look, I'm not saying this to get some sort of pity out of you or anything. I'm just being as blunt as possible. I am not looking to save for retirement, meaning like 65 years old, because if I do, I'll probably never see the fruits of that investment. Mm -hmm. So I need to invest more aggressively now so that I can enjoy my life while I'm able to. For sure. I feel like these are our golden years right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I was able to find a financial advisor who understood it and asked me some pretty amazing questions about my goals and about like my financial situation that really made me feel like she understood where I was coming from. Yeah. Um, but it, it for sure, that's not always the case. It's a lot of financial advisors really just set you up on a plan to be good when you're 65. Right. They, they don't think at all. Money is very confusing when you're disabled and super stressful because you don't have it. So you can't really learn what to do with it. And then you start to get it and you don't really know what to do with it except save it inevitably forever. It's a paralysis. Yeah. Money also doesn't have the same purchasing power for us as it does for able-bodied people. We don't, the big ticket items that able-bodied people buy, we do not buy. Yeah, like a car. Like a car, a house, a fucking uh, trip to some inaccessible place. Yeah. 
Or if you do, it's gonna be way more expensive. Like the yep. average car is you know like twenty, forty k. Yep. But if you want an accessible car, forty k is a steal. If you want a van new off the lot, you're looking at sixty to hundred minimum. Yeah. And then you got to pay somebody to fucking drive you around usually. Right. And same with traveling, like you have to pay someone to go with you or yep. you have to pay uh, for nights at hotels because they factor in accessibility or, you know, you can't just stay at a hostel because it's cheap. For renovations and stuff, you feel guilty for applying for grants or funding if you make enough income to live somewhere on non-subsidized rent. Yeah. So it's just a fucking joke. Horse shit. Anyway, have you ever showered in the kitchen? No. Would you? With a tarp on the floor? And Rooney Mara bathing you? If it was Rooney Mara or somebody that I had equal affection for, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like most able-bodied people would be terrified of water damage. Water damage seems to be the thing that gets discussed around the cubicle during the the uh, late winter, early spring. Not Sally Hawkins. She filled up her whole bathroom. That's true. That's why we love her, because she was willing to sustain water damage. Tony, I think we're at time. You want to call it? Yeah, we should call it. So yeah, uh, in other words, we recommend this movie and uh, <laughs> ODSP and OTs and PTs sometimes are a pain in the ass. Hey, he doesn't die at the end of this movie. I realize that. that I know that's another point. He dies in real life, so they definitely could have let him die. They could have. They they resisted. Yeah. They did have... There is the one trope. The one trope about yeah, the wheelchair noises. No, no, no. At the end of these movies, we always see the wheelie like get up on the stage and make a speech. Uh-huh. We saw it with My Left Foot. We saw it with The Theory of Everything. Uh, we saw it with uh, that one where they go uh, have sex at a brothel. I feel like there's at least I mean, one he more. he was a public speaker. I know, but they always there's always a public speaking event where everyone who cares about the wheelie is there. And then the wheelie is like, you know, I have self-actualized and thank you for all your help, able-bodied mm-hmm. world. And then it's like, you know, cut to credits. They actually did do that in this movie. But it, I didn't really care because the movie had already covered so much realistic ground that I was willing to let it be bullshit for a few minutes. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Please watch it. I think it's got a great cast, great acting. Yeah. It makes you think about disability without being aggressive about it. It doesn't force it down your throat. Yep. Joaquin is not annoying. You know, maybe he could have been a disabled actor, of course. But the performance yeah. that we got was pretty good, all things yeah. considered. It got butts in seats, literally. Yeah. Joaquin's butt went in a seat. And I mean... They did have to act him out as able-bodied for some of it. True. Uh, one small thing that I respected as well is that they never at any point did they de-age him, even though the movie moves through multiple decades, mm-hmm. which I think is a kind of showmanship that like uh, lesser movies will tr- perform because they don't actually have a decent script. So I like that the movie kept Joaquin as Joaquin and... All they did was sort of change the costumes and the set design when they were further back in the past. That was pretty cool. Yeah, overall, great movie. Don't watch it. Have some fun. And sit on your friend's face. Do it. It's the best seat in the house. <laughs> <laughs>